All right, <clears throat> we're live. Welcome to the Friday Q&A. This is um, 20 questions, or it's you ask or something. I don't know. I'm still thinking about what I'm going to call it. I got a ton of your guys' suggestions. But before anything else, I say let's just launch into the first question. This question is because last week I said that I was going to um, be asking, uh, uh, taking a question from the live chat on YouTube before we went live. Now, normally I don't do that, so know this. I normally do not take any questions from the live chat before we go live. But I had said I was going to do that, and then I took it from Facebook because I forgot a few days after I had said it. So this question is taken from that group of questions, and the question is about whether or not we will remember, um, excuse me, let me put it the way they put it, um, since there is no marriage in heaven, are married couples going to be strangers in heaven? And so this is the question. Um, I didn't. I, I'm just. I was in a car, uh, uh, not a car accident, but a, a traffic jam due to a car accident on the way home. So I just rushed into the live stream. Anyway, Matthew twenty two thirty. Jesus says, "For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage." Now this is interesting. So there, there isn't the giving in marriage, and there isn't marriage. So you're not going to get married post resurrection, and you're not going to be married in the resurrection, but are like angels of God in heaven. So this is um, part of a larger discussion Jesus is having with a whole group of uh, guys on the topic of marriage and the resurrection and all that, dealing with first century skepticism about the resurrection. But here's the question. Okay, so will I know my spouse? Like, what will the relationship between me and my wife be in heaven? And I think that the answer is we're going to have an, a more intimate relationship but it won't be the same as marriage. I think it'll be a better relationship. And this is this is the thing. We assume if you're not married, then that means you've been demoted. You've lost something. But I think instead we should be thinking about the resurrection as in every possible way being better than the current state of affairs. And so just like I'm indwelt with the spirit, yet in eternity, in the resurrection, in, in heaven... Right When heaven meets earth and I'm living with God for eternity, I'm going to have an even closer relationship with God than I do right now. More intimate, more present, more awareness of God, more interaction with God. And in the same sense, even though me and my wife right now have a great relationship, it'll be even better in the resurrection. It won't be a husband-wife relationship, but it'll be a stronger, better, closer relationship, I think. That's, that's my understanding of it. And there's hints at this in scripture when it talks about how we're growing towards oneness and how in Christ, we're not only being made one with God, we're being made one with each other. And that this is part of the goal of, of sanctification and of the work of the Spirit in our lives is to create a, a sense of love, deep personal love between believers, between humans, and that that will find its fullest fruition in the resurrection when the world, the flesh, and the devil are gone out of the way and we're just in God's very presence in total and close relationship with each other. Now, I'll just mention as um, as I'm on this kind of side topic here, the there's a teaching out there that people will not have any memories when they're in heaven because it says in Isaiah that the former things will not be remembered nor called to, to mind. And what here what we have to understand is that when the scripture says that things won't be remembered or called to mind, it doesn't mean like literally you can't remember it. Instead, it means that it will not be like thrown in your face or it won't be a bitter memory that weighs you down. It's, it's speaking about a negative type of remembrance. That's what it's talking about. And that is the context in the Hebrew and all that. This is something we should look at the culture and understand. So that when scripture talks about not things not being remembered, it doesn't mean we won't have memories in heaven. Otherwise, how would you even thank God? Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Or, you know, so we've been told. 
we don't remember it. Or in Revelation, the saints are actually calling out to God that he would take vengeance on the earth because of their martyrdom. So they're, they're in the presence of the Lord, yet they remember their martyrdom and they're asking for God to bring uh, judgment. And so there's not going to be a lack of recollection, intellectual recall of earthly events. Rather, there's not going to be the bitter pain that we currently have associated with even the things of this earth, many of the hardships that we've experienced. No, no, there'll be such a comfort from God, such a comfort in his presence, and, and finally realizing we're at the end of the story, we're at the, we're at the happily ever after, so that now we can look at the hardship on the way, and we can see it without that bitterness. And so that's uh, going to be good news. All right. So our first question from the live stream, and I am taking your guys' questions. This is a real live stream. Um, I'm Pastor Mike, and I'm going to be doing this every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time, taking your guys' questions from the live chat. And what I um, what I would like for you to do if you're interested in asking questions is is expand the video description and read like the little four little or five little rules that I've put in there so you can understand how to ask questions properly so that I can help as many of you as possible. I always get more questions than I can answer but I do my best. Jason Staub asks, if I'm not mistaken, you hold the view of conditional election, prevenient grace, and total depravity, though maybe not to the extent of Calvinists. My question is, if Christ dies for all people and all sins, why does a sinner have to overcome the sin of unbelief on their own? Okay, so Jason, um, this question, I think there's a, I'm glad you asked it this way because you're, you're saying, hey, here's my impression of your teaching on this. And I get it. You, I have hundreds of videos online, but you don't know where you're going to find where I talk about um, conditional election or something like that. I think that election um, is at least partly, in some sense, is, is dependent upon foreknowledge. I do think that's the case. And so, I, so then you could call that conditional election in that, in that it's conditioned upon faith, but it wouldn't be works-based in any sense. So I think that that's fair. Provenient grace... Um, as I've understood it, and I haven't read a lot on the on the Arminian doctrine of prevenient grace, as I've understood it, I'm not inclined to believe it. But I haven't really looked into it enough, probably, to be completely honest. Um, I don't, and, and this is probably going to help answer, how is that possible that you don't believe that might? Well, I don't hold to total depravity. I don't hold to, now, I think humans are, are very depraved, and I think we're all desperately in need of a savior, and none of us is going to ever work their way to heaven. Mankind is never going to be good enough, like be like Jesus and live a perfect, sinless life. It's never once going to happen, except for in the case of Christ. And so I, I hold that. But the, the, the idea behind total depravity, it seems to me the key idea that I disagree with, that if it's not total, total depravity, if you don't have this, as I understand it, from my Calvinist brothers, you, feel free to correct me here if you think I'm wrong. Um, but I think the key idea is that humans are, they're depraved to a specific degree. And the degree is that even if God, by his Holy Spirit, is reaching out to you, giving you the message of the gospel, convicting you of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come, and telling you of the, of the Christ, that you still will not have the ability to even say, yes, Lord, save me. Save me, Lord. Like that you lack that ability. See, this isn't just a depravity in, the, in that man has sin or does sinful things. This is a depravity in that man will always, always say no to God, even the grace of God presented by, in the gospel of Christ with the power of the Spirit. That I don't agree with. And so then, of course, maybe I don't, either I don't see a need for prevenient grace or I would define prevenient grace as that very calling of the Holy Spirit not some kind of partial regeneration. Forgive me for anybody who feels like you just got lost in the mix there. It's kind of an in-house question about Calvinism here. So your question was, if Christ dies for all people and all sins, why does a sinner have to overcome the sin of unbelief on their own? Um, 
even in my scenario, they're not doing it on their own. Nobody's overcoming anything on their own. And I would say this is thoroughly taught in scripture, both because creation's declaring the glory of God. So we have this external revelation of who God is. This isn't something I'm doing on my own. I'm being told about God. Conscience, Romans 1, conscience is telling me that I'm a sinner and so that I'm in need of a savior. So I have an internal uh, wiring given to me by God to send off the red alarms that I need to be saved. There's a God and I need salvation. And then they hear the message of the gospel. Well, they're certainly not overcoming unbelief on their own because it's the Holy Spirit who is, who's calling them through that. So I don't think they're on their own uh, in that case. So number two, Pat Hobbs has a question. A friend at age 12 signed his, uh, signed his soul over in a blood pact to Satan um, in an at-home ceremony. He was a kid, but he now feels that he cannot be saved. Please comment on this deal with the devil. Okay, first off, I'll say, Pat, I don't, I don't make light of these kinds of things at all. Okay, so your friend, I wouldn't make light of it. I wouldn't joke about it. And for those who would, I think that that would, I think that that's foolish. Um, so my, my answer would be this. Whatever claims, even if they are somehow legitimate, that Satan could have had on your friend, they are taken care of by, forgive the terminology, by the blood pact of Jesus Christ on the cross. That Jesus broke the power of Satan on the cross. That he overcame him. He bought us back. And so in whatever sense we were sold over to sin or Satan, all of us were purchased by Christ. And when we put our faith in Christ, we experience all the benefits of that salvation. So it is merely a, um, a death rattle of Satan to tell your friend that they cannot be saved. Because ultimately, Satan has no power over those who are in Christ. Because they're a new creation. All things have made, are made new. So yeah, absolutely. Jesus is the solution to this problem. Tobias Sedneff says, uh, what are your thoughts on Proverbs 16.4? Does it suggest that God created, perhaps predestined, the unsaved for judgment or condemnation? Okay, let's go to that passage. Proverbs 16.4. And here you go. I'll give it to you guys as well. It says, the Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. God made all for himself, even the wicked for the day of doom. Now, the... Um, this is actually probably a good example of a passage where it doesn't give us an answer to your question. It's more like you're not going to draw out of this Calvinist theology and you're not going to draw out of it like non-Calvinist or Arminian or whatever other you know theology. You're not going to get that out of it. Instead, you're going to come with your theological commitment and then you're going to read this and probably process it according to what you already think is the case. So in other words, it's it's a text that is... That is um, interpreted through your theological grid, it is not the text that gives you the grid. That would be my impression. So let me give you a Calvinist reading of this passage. The Lord's made all for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. So I think that a Calvinist reading would say, look, see, God created you as, and this would be like a strong determinist view, like he's made you and he's made you wicked so that you will be destroyed for his own glory. That would be like a super, super strong, not all Calvinists would agree with that. Would, many wouldn't want to say it that way. But you could, you could read it that way through that grid. Let me give you an, um, a more of a, my perspective on this, on, this pers on this verse. So the Lord has made all for himself. Okay, that's the overarching theme of, of, of the proverb. And it's wisdom. It's not meant to give us tons of details. But they're all made for himself. So God will use everyone for his own purposes and for his own glory, right? Even the wicked for the day of doom. And we see that 
even those who are wicked, God has an intention and a purpose in their life that he will use for his own purposes. And we see this in things like Jesus using, using Judas, the, Judas the betrayer for his own purposes. Now, woe to the one who does it. It's Judas's fault. He chose to do it, but God's going to use it for his purposes. And so I, I don't think that it says that God makes them wicked and they don't have free will. It just says that God has a purpose even for the wicked. Yet Proverbs is full of an assumption that you make choices on whether or not you will walk that path of wickedness or walk the path of righteousness. What it seems to be saying here is that God's sovereignty over mankind is such that he will even use the rebellion of the wicked for his own purposes. He's just that good at navigating reality and making sure that things take place the way he wants them to. He's sovereign. And so this is this is more of like a... Um, middle knowledge, Molinist kind of perspective, that would be, for, forgive me for those who've not heard these terms, that would, that would be my perspective on this verse. But notice this, the verse didn't actually solidly give us either of those interpretations. All it ultimately gives us is, hey, God is in charge, and even the wicked, he has things he's going to do when he judges them that will bring him glory. And so those who see the wicked prospering and see the wicked thriving and doing their thing and getting away with it. We know that God will have his day even in their lives. And so that brings us a measure of the sense of justice of God. It doesn't actually intend, I think, to teach or answer the question either way. We sort of bring our theological grid to that verse. Um, let's see here. We've got another question. This is um, Naomi Yurkov, who says, you inspire me to study my Bible verse by verse, but I don't know where to start. I was wondering what study resources you use or would recommend for someone not familiar with the original languages. Um, yeah, you definitely don't, Naomi, you don't need to be familiar with the original languages or feel that you're out of sorts because you don't know original languages. One of the things you can do for not knowing original languages is have a variety of translations. So if you're worried, if, if you're you know interested, I'll put it this way, if you're interested in getting in this verse, like, is there other ways to translate this? Are they picking between options? The easiest way to do this in English is to just look at four or five translations. And so if you look at, say, the NASB and the ESV and the NIV, and, um, you know, maybe you maybe you pick, uh, pick up a couple of others as well. Um, those are great resources that you could do. You just, you just refer to a few different translations, and you can tell by the way they render things, you can pick up in English, okay, they're rendering it differently because they're making decisions going from one language to another. Another resource you might be interested in is uh, netbible.org, um, netbible I think is the website. Um, let me just confirm that because I, I don't want to send a whole bunch of people to the, to the wrong link. Is that right? Yeah, netbible.org. And th this is actually a fantastic... Uh, resource you can use um maybe i maybe i can actually show it to you let me see if i have yeah i can show it to you i know it screen's black just give me a sec okay this is netbible.org so here you are it you know the default is matthew chapter one and so netbible.org which i find to be a pretty useful resource i'm sorry for the size of the font i'll try to enlarge it for you guys a bit no it's too big okay we'll go with this so here you have their translation of the Bible, the NET, which, which is a decent translation of the Bible. It really is. But you've also got what's nice about this webpage is you've got a ton of free resources, footnotes. And so you have textual notes. That's where it says TN. And these are all tied to the verses on the left. 
So the verses on the left, you have, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Well, there's a little blue one here, and I can go and, hi and, and highlight it. And okay, it takes me over to the textual note, which is why it says T in there. And this is going to be a note dealing with the, the text of the ancient languages. So the book of the genealogy, the noun Biblos, though it is without the article, is to be translated as a definite due to Apollonius's corollary and the use of um, and the normal use of anarthrous nouns in titles. So that's more of a textual note. That's more of a, of a, of a, of a geek thing, right? But you, you also get um, what are SN, which are study notes, which are probably more what um, beginners are more interested in. Study notes, these are, these are just like interesting things that refer you to other, other places in scripture. And then you get the TC, which I think stands for text critical note, which has to do with why did we choose to, to translate it... Um, Let's say in the original manuscript we had multiple different uh, variants of, of a word in that verse. And here's why we picked the word we picked and went with it. And it gives you a bunch of details there. So this is like a really interesting and free resource. There's other stuff here too. You have the Greek, if you want to look at the Greek. Um, you have um, other Bible translations, I think, available. So anyhow, that's NetBible. I find that to be a great resource. Another resource I've looked into a little bit is called StepBible.org. StepBible.org, another free resource that I think has some pretty good um, and free content on it. So those are great places to look. But another thing I'd recommend is find um, maybe a few, maybe maybe two or three different resources that are like commentaries through like the whole Bible because you just can't afford to buy commentaries for everything all the time. So you can do that and you'd have your own bookshelf case. If you have, and if, if you... Um, if you have, I don't, I don't have the top of my head a recommendation of which one to go with, sorry. But if you want an, another resource that has a lot of commentaries that I think many of them are good commentaries, it's blueletterbible.org. And they're a little bit safer because when you're reading commentaries, you're asking someone to give you their interpretation of scripture and you want to have reliable and um, orthodox biblical resources for that. So blueletterbible.org. There's another one for you. So yeah, Naomi, th those are some things to get started with. Um, and so I would pick a, a book of the Bible that you're interested in and start working through it verse by verse. Okay, we have a question from Alex M. How should I speak to someone who's going to die because of cancer while another Christian got her hopes up that her cancer wouldn't return, claiming that God said it wouldn't? And how should I speak about evil and suffering to her? Um, okay, so there's, there's, there's three people. There's you, there's a person who has cancer, and there's another person who's a Christian that told that person, um, you're going to be healed. God said you'll, you'll be healed. Let me tell you a true story that this, this really happened. And um, it's, it's unfortunate. So my mom had a friend who had cancer. And she asked me to head over there and pray for her friend. Now, I, I had done this years ago with my grandmother when she had cancer. I drove out, like, uh, out to see my grandmother um, with my mom, gathered with some friends, and we prayed over her. And, um, or her, my grandmother's friend, excuse me, my grandmother's friend. And the, the Lord actually did heal her. She got over the cancer. It seemed as though it was a God thing, and we were all just rejoicing in it. And so this friend had cancer and went to pray with her. And I don't have any special super frequent miracles or something like that in my prayers. Uh, not that I'm aware of. I'm, it happened, but it, I wouldn't, it's not like a regular thing. So we went and prayed for them. And I brought a friend with me who was someone I was discipling. And we're there praying for, um, for her. And I, I just saw her. And something I saw in her that was amazing to me was she just had this total spiritual renewal. I'd never seen her. I'd known her for years, my mom's friend. Never seen her so focused on God and content in the Lord. 
and it just it was really sweet it was really amazing to see the work that god had done they're in the midst of all this craziness and the friend i brought full of zeal genuine zeal love for the lord he while we prayed he he stops and he says i know god's going to heal you i know god's going to heal you now i i didn't have any sense that that was something god was like revealing to us at the time my impression and i kept it to myself because what do i know my impression was that this was just zeal turning into an assumption, turning into a promise that I didn't think God was actually saying at the time. And um, and it, it's interesting as I looked at this friend, having known her a little bit, it didn't look like it. she, she thought he, she just saw through it. She saw for what it was like this. He's just zealous. It's okay. And it didn't really impact her much. And so I didn't worry about that too much. We moved on. Um, she went home to be with the Lord. And I kick myself that I didn't years ago pull the guy aside and say, hey, remember when you said that God was telling her, I mean, I should have done this. This was my failure. Should have, should have pulled him aside and said, remember when you said that? Well, she's passed away and I need you to, to, to not freak out, but to realize that you were speaking things that were from you that you thought were from God and you need to never do that. It's a really big deal. This is something that I wish I had done and I would encourage you if the time comes, pull that person aside pull that person aside and deal with them. And um, if you have to involve a leader, you can involve a leader. But do it as a, as a gracious way of trying to help disciple them, not just tear them down. But as far as the person goes, um, unless you know one way or the other, unless you have a good reason to think that this is like from God, not from God, unless you have some good indication, then maybe you need to just hold your peace for now and be praying for them and and wait and see and wait on wisdom. Wait for God to give you wisdom on how you might interact with them. So that's my counsel. I know it's incomplete, but I, I think I'd be in sort of a wait and see mode. Um, stay stay connected with the person who has cancer so that you can be there for them if the time comes where they need someone to like um, help them process something. Yeah, because it may not have been the Lord. And, and I know the tendency, the, the human tendency, especially in the climate we're in right now, people will very easily say they're speaking on God's behalf when they just feel something strongly. And those are not the same thing, guys. Non-believers who do not have the Holy Spirit, they feel things strongly. That doesn't mean God is speaking to them. Unless you have some reason to think this is God, not me, then you shouldn't say it's God, not me. But, um, but I know some people are so zealous that it's hard to talk to them about these things. Let's see. Zanet Weissman says, you mentioned in part two the Mark, of the Mark series that John the Baptist was the one setting the way for the Lord, Yahweh. Logos, the Hebrew, is Kurios, confused because that changes the meaning in ASB. All right, Zana, I just want to remind everybody, you got to like reread what you're writing. And I don't know if, if you type it fast or if English is your second language, and I totally want to be gracious, but I just want to make sure I get your question. And this is a little bit gob, uh, garbled. So here's what I think you're asking, Zana, and I appreciate your question. Um, so in the um, in the original language, it says it's, Kurios, and I know it's pronounced, it's spelled with a Y, but in the, in the Greek, it's Kurios, not Yahweh in the Greek. Uh, but So let me explain that. That's because in the Mark passage, where it says that he's preparing the way of the Lord, and it's Yahweh, it's quoting the Old Testament, and it's the Old Testament that says preparing the way of Yahweh, make straight the way of the Lord. That's, that's actually the word Yahweh. Now, in the first century, in the Greek, Whenever they wrote down God's name, they would generally not write his name. This is like something they just stopped doing. So in the Greek, they would use the word 
kurios or Lord instead of the word Yahweh. We actually do the same thing in English now in our Old Testament. In most Bibles, when you read L-O-R-D, but it's a capital L-O-R-D, or a G-O-D, but it's, it's G and then a capital O and a capital D, even though they're small, they're capitalized. Anytime you see a full, fully capitalized Lord or fully capitalized God, you're actually seeing that's a hint that the translator is giving you that behind the text in the Hebrew is the word Yahweh. So yes, um, the, the verse they're quoting in the Old Testament is Yahweh. In the New Testament, it says kurios, which was the normal way they would write, you know, Yahweh, and they would translate it in the New Testament. So I, I hope that that helps you. Um, Brandy Medved has a question. Verses like Jeremiah 29, 11 is quoted a lot for us. I get confused on these types of scripture because God was speaking to someone or some group, not the U.S. Are these types of verses meant for us now? So let's go to that verse and let's talk about it. This is a very commonly quoted verse. And I think there's two flaws, two problems we can fall into. Personally, I think that we fall into with this scripture. And I'll just let you guys know, we do have all of our 20 questions for today. I'll try to get through all 20 if I can, but we're not going to be able to take more. We always get more questions than I can answer. And for those who are like, I, I have to get Mike to answer my question, just know there's only one of me. And that's why I'm doing these weekly things to answer at least some of the questions that come in on a daily basis. Um, Jeremiah 20, 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So... This scripture is quoted a lot as like a personal promise. And oftentimes, and, and here's, there's two flaws I want us to avoid. So let me talk about both flaws. One flaw is, and this is probably the more dominant one. We quote this scripture as though it's an individualized promise and it applies to this life in this world. And, and it applies to physical and financial prosperity. That is a major mistake. This verse is not written to me. It's, this is actually written to Israel. And if I took everything that Jeremiah writes to Israel and I, and I applied it directly to me, then that would be a, actually a big problem. Um, because in a lot of places, Jeremiah is telling Israel, like, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to, your enemies are going to come and tear down your house. Like, I'm not quoting that to me. I'm only quoting this kind of out of context. Like, just, this is for me. I throw away the verses don't that I don't like and I apply the ones I do like. And this is not a right handling of God's word. Also, it's, it's not about your physical prosperity and all that, which the Bible tells us we may well suffer and lose things like family and friends and homes and lives in this world. So what do I do with the verse then? Well, then we get on the other side. Then people are like, see, Jeremiah 29, 11, it doesn't apply to you. Take it out of your, out of your quotable verses list. It just doesn't apply to you. And then I think they make the second error, which is to have no application of a beautiful scripture that does teach us something about God's heart towards us. And so I, I want to kind of have that middle ground. The middle ground is this. God does have thoughts that he thinks towards me. And what are those? He loves me and he's offered his grace to me and he has a hope and a future for me. But what is the, what is the future hope? Well, I look at the New Testament to tell me how this applies to me. The future hope is heaven, eternity with Jesus Christ, eternal life where every every tear is wiped away and I'm in the comfort of the presence of God forever where there's no, no more aches and pains and death and dying and all that. That's the future and the hope that he has for me. And so if I, if I interpret it with in, in context of the promises I've been given in the New Testament for all believers today, I can see how his thoughts towards me are good. They are thoughts of peace and not of evil. It's a future and a hope, but it's different than what he was talking uh, in Jeremiah 
to the Israelites about. So I think that that's a way to quote it and, and remind ourselves of our eternal hope because this is a huge deal in the New Testament. The Christian's hope is not in kingdoms of this world. The Israelis, you know, in Jeremiah's time, they're thinking about God taking care of them as part of the, the covenant, you know, the Mosaic covenant and all that. And this is, we're just under a new covenant that has a new and longer and better promise. All right, so I hope that helps, Brandy. Uh, Nathaniel H. says, I go to a liberal Christian university and the Bible teaching here is untrue. I prob it probably is. <laughs> um, scripture and the gospel are undermined consistently. How do I properly address these issues in my Bible class? Well, Nathaniel, um, let me offer you one piece of advice that I, I hope helps, and it's this. Sometimes you can think because you're the student and, and, and you're thinking, okay, they're, teach they're going through the Bible, but they're teaching things that are false. You can think that it's your job to fight that teacher that semester. And this can kind of shift gears for you because you're also there to get a degree. And that degree is part of your overall service to God in your life. And you're not in a position to actually fight the teacher. Um, and so the more you try, the more you, you put yourself in difficult <laughs> and perhaps unnecessarily difficult scenarios. Not only that, you probably don't have the education. I mean, you might, but let me just say most people in your situation don't have the education and the knowledge to actually properly push back on those teachers. And so my thought is this, push back when you have a good time to push back. The, this is a good opportunity. There's wisdom in this right now. And you have the knowledge of, of the scripture and the knowledge of the issue in order to be able to push back. Because if you push back ineffectively, it can be worse than not pushing back at all. You know, you open your mouth to say, that's not right. And then you, but you don't actually know anything about the subject. You just know that he's wrong. Well, the problem there is that then you just give them an, another opportunity to showcase their, um, their liberal and um, un, ungodly theology. So that would be some advice for you. I, I think that it's, it's okay to say, look, um, my, my goal here perhaps is to prepare me to push back, not just against this teacher, but to push back against this kind of teaching wherever I find it. So as I hear from their lips, the reason they believe this and the reason they hold to it, and I start to identify more and more the, um, the challenges I can bring to it and the ways to refute it, then I'm preparing myself for ministry. So in a sense, I would rather you think of this opportunity in class as practice, practice for the future. So I hope that that's wisdom for you, Nathaniel. That's what I have to share. Let's see. We have uh, a pig with 100 subscribers. That's the name of the YouTube channel. I am not that mean. And he says, why does Paul teach being saved by faith, not of works, but Jesus teaches getting into the kingdom of God by works, like following the commandments? I don't think Jesus does teach that, actually. I think that you've misunderstood Jesus. And I would recommend you check out my Mark series. Just a few weeks ago, we dealt with Jesus and the rich man. When the rich man's like, how will I enter heaven? And, and Jesus says, um, the, you know, keep the commandments. And then he says, all these I've kept from my youth. And then Jesus says, oh, well, the one thing you lack. Now, I actually verse by verse taught through that whole passage very carefully, trying to show that he's, he demonstrates that it's impossible, right? The, the beginning and end of the passage are what people forget. The beginning where he says, good teacher, and Jesus is like, you don't know what good is. Your very, your very standard of good is too low. And then at the end of the passage, Jesus says, it's actually impossible, not possible for the rich man to get into heaven. 
It is only going to be possible through God somehow. There will be an, an alternate path, not of works, that Jesus is going to provide. And that is the context of Mark 10. Jesus is there giving us his sacrifice. He's revealing that he's, the, he's not just there as the Messiah. He's not just God with us. He's also going to be the sacrifice to take away our sin so that we can be forgiven. So this is in the flow of Mark. It's very important. Um, please check that out. Uh, Jesus and the rich man, uh, the verse uh, passage I taught very recently. Uh, Cass Magnuson says, how does Matthew 28, 18 through 20 apply to each individual Christian? And how does one make a disciple? Is it just evangelism and baptism of a lost person or is it overseeing their growth? Okay, so Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I think the verse is going to answer the second part of your question for you. Here you go. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So we're told to make disciples of all nations. And then I think Jesus is then, and, and, and oh, let me ask the first part of your question first. Let me answer that. I do think this has application to all Christians. I think it was a specific command given to the to the disciples, to the twelve. They're they're the fountainheads of this of the beginning of this ministry, but it is there is some application of it into every believer's life. We're all to be um, sharing and trying to make disciples, but not all in the same level. Uh, not everybody's discipling. Uh, where they're like a leader in the church and that kind of, it's not like everybody's a leader. If everybody's a leader, nobody is. <laughs> and um, so that's not what I'm saying. But if this is the mission of the church as a whole, let me put it this way. We should at least try to find ourselves as part of that mission. Am I doing something to help with the making disciples of all nations? Am I doing something to push forward, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you? What am I doing to help push forward the the call of, of, um, evangelism and discipleship that that Jesus gave the church although here he combines the two so make disciples a disciple is someone who's like a learner follower one who is a regular regular um, devoted follower and then he tells us how to make disciples right baptizing them in the name of the Father Son and the Holy Spirit that is the initial beginning of being a disciple of Christ the early church at, at, in, in the book of Acts I mean the actual early church not a hundred years later Right? 130 AD is not the early church. Certainly when you were, if you were alive in 130 AD, you weren't like, we're the early church. You'd be like, well, the apostles of all are all dead and gone. And we're like the latecomers. That's how you would feel. We sometimes look at church history through weird lenses. But the actual early church, book of Acts, right? When you got saved, you got baptized right away. Salvation, baptism. So that was like initiation, the beginning of this, um, this, this proclamation. I'm, I'm a, I believe in Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. He is, I've died with him and risen with him. I've identified with his death and resurrection. So that's step one. And the next, teach them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. So that's the second part of discipleship, right? Is, so evangelism, that makes you initially a disciple. But being a disciple means continuing to learn and grow in Christ. And so you're going to teach them to observe all the things I've commanded you. So that involves the teaching thing. And I, I do, obviously, I do a whole lot of the teaching thing. That's that's my thing. Um, I occasionally do baptisms, but I, I do a whole lot of this teaching thing. That would be my my contribution. Uh-oh, look at that. I moved my thing around. Shh, don't tell anybody. Okay. All right, let's take the next question. Could you please share your testimony uh, and your struggles as a new believer? Um, so, Zizi, this is from Zizi. I don't share... Um, 
my testimony too much online, or really much at all, and only give pieces of it. And the reason is this, is that some of the things that, that are in my testimony are embarrassing to my family, and I love them and wouldn't want to share those things. So why? Because there's a million people watching. Now, in youth ministry, I would share these things with the students because it's individually, and I thought it might minister to them. But, but all you'll know of, the, of those people who are still alive, right, is some of the darkest days of their lives. And I don't want to do that to my family. I love them and care about them. And, and you'll get a wrong impression because you'll think that's all that they were is that, that those, those mistakes and those problems and stuff like that. So bottom line is I was about 12 when I first heard the gospel, uh, knew I needed God, re- re- received it, went to church on my own, uh, and nobody, nobody else was going in my family. And, and I um, entered into a relationship with God. And I did feel like I had a real relationship with God, and it totally changed my life. And then my discipleship was very, very slow. And partially because I was like the only guy who was serious about being a Christian in my family. And you might look at me sometimes and wonder how serious I was about it. Um, so yeah, I, I'm sorry that I'm not going to share you with you a whole lot more right now today. But at least hopefully you'll understand why. It's not about hiding things. It's about loving people. Uh, Guppy Life says, It is said that Jacob fought against God in the scripture, but the text refers to a fight with an angel. Is God the angel of the Lord? Why, Guppy Life, I'm so glad you asked. That's a great question. I just so happen to have a whole teaching on the angel of the Lord, and I deal with that passage in particular. And I'm going to ask one of my mods to link it in the live chat. Please put it there. I'll leave this live chat up afterwards, too, for people watching after the fact. Yes, um, I think that he struggled with God. And part of the reason is that later on, he he's he's talking about how he struggled with God in other verses later on, and he refers to it as as struggling with God. And so then when he's blessing his kids, he has this really interesting... Let me see if I can find the passage real quick. Um, Let me see if I can find it. I probably can't because I'm just doing this like really off the cuff. Um, Nope, there it is. Okay, so uh, I'm very fortunate. Okay, so this is in uh, Genesis 48, 16. Um, this this angel that he's speaking of, um, he says, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, the angel, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on. Oh, hold on. Oh, this is not it. Oh, no, this is it. This is it. Yeah, sorry. Okay. <laughs> it's been a while since I looked at this verse. Um, okay, so it starts in verse uh, 15. And he blessed Joseph, Jacob's blessing, his one of his sons. He says, the God, the God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. And then singular, bless the boys. So there's one being doing the blessing. And the being that's doing the blessing is the God before whom my fathers Abraham walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, and then the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. And so um, he's probably speaking here of the angel of the Lord he wrestled with. I think that just about every time you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, just about, it's going to be a reference to Jesus, ultimately, the second person of the Trinity. So I I get into tons more detail in that video on the angel of the Lord, tons more, because I know that brings up a bunch of questions, and I deal with that as well. All right, Miguel Ponce says, can someone who commits suicide go to heaven? I've heard it argued that if they were true believers who just happened to commit that act in a moment of weakness or confusion, they're still saved. Yeah, Miguel, I um, I do I 
I have a video on that. I, I will answer the question here today, but I do have a video on this where I talk about it in much more detail on the topic of suicide. And um, maybe one of my mods can link that, find that and link it in the live chat. I'd appreciate it. And thank you, Sarah. I see you put the Angel of the Lord video in the live chat. So um, I don't think suicide, if we have any reason to think that the act of suicide means you've lost your salvation. I don't think we have any good reason to think that. I think the real question what we have to ask is the same question we have to ask of everybody is, am I actually saved? But that's not, you know, it's not like, and if you commit suicide, you reveal that you were never really truly a Christian. I think Christians can, can and do do horrible things. I think absolutely this stuff can happen. And the New Testament warns us about this stuff as well. So it's the, the fear here is that by saying this, I'm somehow encouraging someone who's considering suicide to go ahead and do it. And, but, but here's the thought. Am I supposed to like just make stuff up to scare people out of committing suicide? Like, is that what I'm supposed to do? Is that how like we're going to handle reality now? We're just, we'll just lie to people about things in order to keep them from doing stuff. And I, I think that that's unwise. I think it's ungodly. And I think it does terrible harm to the loved ones of those who are struggling with the fact that their friend or their their, their brother, their husband, their wife committed suicide. I, I don't. Th I think we do them harm when we uh, when we overdo things like that. Um, but I do have a video teaching on this topic. I know it's a heavy issue and it gets into all all sorts of problems. I do think that we we think too too lightly of suicide, especially our culture. Our culture is kind of becoming more like Indian culture, uh, like in India, um, where suicide is just more of an accepted thing in society. And more and more, because we just talk about people who commit suicide like they're total victims, and oh, just we understand, and it's not their fault. Um, we, we, we rightly want to sympathize with the person who commits suicide. We rightly don't want to push on the painful wounds of those who are left behind. But we go so far as to not show people how much they destroy and hurt and harm the lives of everybody around them when they do these things. And I almost feel like we need to highlight the, the people who remain. When this husband commits suicide, look at his son for the next 10 years of his life and how much harm he caused to that guy, to that kid. I think if we would highlight the harm that suicide causes to the people around you that you love, then we might actually help prevent more suicides. Um, but usually when someone's suicidal, they become at that point fairly narcissistic. Uh, they only, I'm, I'm speaking, I'm just speaking honestly here. They're only thinking about themselves. Narcissists aren't necessarily outwardly mean or evil to others. They just don't care about you. Okay. Your concerns, your issues don't matter to me as much as what I'm worried about for myself. So my concern with the suicide issue is, is that is that hyper self-focus that we don't tend to talk about, that that incredible narcissism that usually more often precedes suicide. Now, other weird things happen, right? When someone comes off medication uh, suddenly and then their body's freaking out and those are, there's all kinds of other issues going on there. I know, I know, it's complicated. Threads of Hope says, regarding the biblical idea of the elect, I don't understand. Does that mean some people cannot be saved no matter what? Uh, no, I don't think so at all. I, I mean, my view would be um, if if they if, if they're going to trust in Christ, then they're going to also be part of the elect. But since election is in some sense, and I'm going to be I want to carefully say in some sense because I don't have this like what often you hear against the idea of foreknowledge, election being connected to foreknowledge is a sort of overly simplistic view of foreknowledge equals election. And I don't think it's that simple. I, I think it's a little more complicated, but I do think that foreknowledge is involved in election. 
let me just throw that out there that way and um and so yeah no absolutely this is not determinism election does not mean determinism that's that's what foreknowledge does when you put it into the mix you go oh so god knows all those who choose him and he also is going to be choosing them and i would add he also chose the the to create this particular world with these particular people that ended up being those ones that chose him but this preserves god's free choice and my free choice and that's what i'm interested in i'm interested in a conclusion that includes both of those things i think that that's very important Lindsay Pinkard says, my husband grew up Catholic and his family keeps telling us we aren't really married because we aren't married by the Catholic church. How can we lovingly respond to them with biblical truth? Well, that is definitely not Catholic teaching. Um, so your marriage is real. It's just not sacramental. And so that does devalue your marriage to a sense because in Catholicism, marriage became a sacrament and newsflash, though the official councils of the Roman Catholic Church declare infallibly, I'm using air quotes for anybody who's listening to the audio, <laughs> infallibly, they say that Jesus himself instituted all seven sacraments. So marriage was instituted by Christ and it was taught by the apostles and it was, all three of these things are claimed in the councils and that it was universally known by the church fathers, which doesn't mean every individual church father knew it, but it means it was like the accepted belief and acknowledged belief of the church fathers. Now, that is what's taught in the councils. In reality, in actual hist historical research, marriage didn't become an actual sacrament in the current, yeah, the word sacrament may have been used, but not in the current Catholic theological sense for over a thousand years. That's super significant. First time we see lists of seven sacraments is so long after the time of Christ and of the apostolic fathers that no one can claim that they had this universal belief in the sacrament, sacramental uh, nature of marriage. And so when it comes to Catholic theology, um, marriage is now considered a sacrament. It has been for like a thousand years, um, almost a thousand years. And it is considered, you know, one of those things that, that imparts grace. It, it, it brings grace into our lives. And your marriage to a non-Catholic isn't considered sacramental. It's still considered a marriage. At least that's my understanding of the teaching there. So what would your response be to them? Um... I mean, you could go dig up some Catholic teaching that says that marriages to non-Catholics are still are still marriages. <laughs> They're just not sacramental. You could go find teaching that says that and then and then let them know. See, you know, you're misunderstanding your own theology here. But there's obviously bigger bigger doctrinal issues and concerns going on between you and them at that point. Um, but I understand how awkward it would be, you know, to have your husband's family saying those kinds of things about your marriage. That's kind of embarrassing, yeah. So Carmen Cowley says, uh, what if you did an unbiblical divorce, but your ex-spouse is already remarried, so reconciliation is impossible? Are you then free to remarry? I think, and I'll give you my short answer here, uh, Carmen. My short answer is uh, you are free to remarry, but like technically, yes, I think you're free to remarry, but make sure that you do that hard work. I'm assuming that's you. It could be someone else you're talking to, maybe someone you're counseling. So make sure that that the person does this heart work where they say, have I really come to terms with where I have failed? Not where they failed, where I failed. Have I come to a place of forgiveness even of my former spouse? Am I in a place where I'm going to have a healthy uh, life submitted to God and able to enter into this new relationship with a new attitude of, of, of honoring the marriage and of doing it unto the Lord? Not to carry the same attitude that... that was part of that divorce that happened before. That's a very important issue. So I have a teaching on husbands and wives. Um, 
a teaching for husbands on how to be a husband, a teaching for wives on how to be a wife. Not drawn from my wisdom, but drawn from what the teaching of scripture is on those different roles. And I would recommend checking those out. Um, you can just Google them. Uh, Shania M says, I have a question about 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 15. Due to the text, does this make co-ed Bible studies unbiblical? Um, what about women's ministry? Thanks, Mike. I get questions like this an awful lot, and it's going to be an area of focus one of these days, right? So I'm going to give you my current understanding. I'll, really quickly, I'll, I'll try to answer this. 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 15, and I will just say that I, um, 2, 12 through 15, maybe in two years, I'll have like a whole teaching on this topic that's available online. You might try Googling for it if you're watching this two years from now, where I might even change my opinions on some of these things, because I'm giving you what I think based on my study of the scripture at the moment. And that's all we can go with as well. Scripture seems to be saying this, I'm going to go with that. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived became a, and became a transgressor. Yet she will be safe through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Short, shortest teaching on this topic you've ever heard. Here you go. <laughs> um, I think that teaching and exercising authority over the man has to do with um, the role of um, of being like a in a pastoral role. And I do think scripture is saying that that is not to be, you know, inhabited by a woman, right? I think that's what scripture is teaching. Whole bunch of issues there about, oh, is, are you saying women are less valuable or less capable? No, not at all. Um, but it's saying that it's somehow part of the fall. Um, Adam and Eve, he connects it to Adam and Eve and the fall. And it seems to be a part of the created order for now, right? They're in, in, in Christ in heaven, it, it, eternally, there won't be any sort of male, female role distinctions. I don't think, right? I don't think there's going to be eternity going to be any of that, but I think it does continue to persist for now in the church part, partly maybe as our witness to the world, partly maybe as, as the interaction of angels. There's other verses to talk about that. And Adam was not deceived that yet she'll be saved through childbearing. I think that that refers to, um, not salvation. We assume salvation refers to being saved from sin and hell or something, but I think it refers here to an elevation of a, of a woman's status in motherhood, that this has like always been the wonderful elevation of women that um, uh, you could get in. We could talk about for days about how much that, that very fact of motherhood elevates the appreciation and, and respect of women. But what about doing a co-ed Bible study? I'm definitely, personally, I'm more flexible to like open discussion and co-ed Bible studies. We're all just kind of talking, that kind of thing. But if you're talking about someone who's like take, coming into a pastoral role, right, where they're beginning to become like a pastor for that community of people, I don't think that that's a role that God has for women. And I think it because of scripture, not because I'm bigoted. Not that the world cares. They're going to see what they want to see. Uh, Michael Francisco has a question. Oh, you said, what about women in ministry? I don't know where to draw all the lines. I'm just talking about the official, like, sort of, I'm a pastor. That role, I do think, is forbidden. Open to changing my mind. One day I'll study this topic, and maybe I will change my mind, or maybe I'll just become more hard-nosed. <laughs> Michael Francisco says, how do I address lack of plurality in leadership? We have one pastor who teaches every sermon in class, no elders. How do I bring up this issue with the church? We're too reliant on one person. Michael, I, it sounds like you're right. I probably agree with you. You are too reliant on one person. Um, that can still be a healthy church. It can still function well. It's all going to go according to that one guy. If he's incredibly godly, incredibly godly, humble, faithful, then, then you know, wise, knowledgeable, you're going to have, you're going to be blessed, right? If he has flaws, those flaws are going to permeate, you know, throughout the ministry. Multiple people is a stopgap against that. Um, I think that 
if I were to talk to you, if, if I were you, I would want to sit down and prepare a short, um, short like defense of plurality and of the need for multiple leaders. Short, because your pastor, when you go to talk to him about this, is probably not going to give you three hours to make your case. So short, boom, boom, boom. Here's my three most important points. I'm going to make those, and then I'll have other things I can share. And I'm going to go to him and say, hey, can we get together and talk? I have something I'm concerned about, and I want to, I want to take it to you. And start by endorsing his leadership. I respect you. I endorse your leadership. And I want you to be where you are. But I think we're missing something else. I think we're missing other leaders who are also part of the ministry in, in, a, in, in a significant capacity. So I would recommend doing it that way. You're asking for my advice. That's, that's I think, how I would do it. And then let the chips fall where they may. What I don't recommend is talking to everybody else about it. Him hearing through the grapevine that you're talking about how we have wrong leadership or we need different leaders because that's going to just put the walls right up. And then when you do finally talk to him, he's already in defense mode. And so that's a problem. Um, so take it to him and do it that way. Admittedly, you guys, a lot of you are at churches where you've got one sort of monarchical leader um, and you don't know how to change it and maybe you can't. This doesn't invalidate your church. I mean, if you can't change it, you can't change it. You work within, within the structure that God has given and you submit and you do it joyfully. Now, things may come down the road. There may be harm that, that is caused by this. That's not your fault. If you can make a change in a godly and positive way, not in a rebellious way, then go for it. There's my counsel <laughs> for what it's worth. Uh, Cedal P has a question and we're almost done. I think I'm going to get to all 20. This is number 19. Why do we Christians not keep the Sabbath, even though it is part of the moral law? It is written by the finger of God on stone, not just spoken to Moses like the Mosaic law. Shouldn't we keep it? Let me, let me tackle this one step at a time. So I, I do teach Cedal that we don't have to, um, rest on the Sabbath as though we are underneath, under the law of Moses. But I see the law of Moses as being something overall we're not under. So I don't just cherry pick pieces of the law of Moses to be under. I don't think we're under the law of Moses as a general rule. Does that mean I'm without law? I think I'm, I am under the law of Christ. And I think that my emphasis is going to be walking in the spirit, not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. I think that I'm no longer worried about, about um, the outward things. I'm worried very much, very much about the inward things and very much about the godliness of a person's heart and a person's character and a person's life. So I want to have love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. I want to avoid the works of the flesh that Paul enumerates in Galatians and the things like that. And this is my task. Now let me answer some of the specific things you said. Um, uh, it was written by God, by his finger on stone. Okay, so I, I get that. Right? The Ten Commandments were written by God's own finger on stone, not spoken. Does that mean that they're to apply to Gentiles later on who put their trust in Christ? I don't think so. I, I, I just don't think so. I don't think there's anything about it being written by God's finger that means it applies to a different group of people than the rest of the law applied to. I don't think that's the case. Now, there are things in the law of Moses that definitely God will judge all nations for, but that's not because they're in the law of Moses. It's because they're part of the natural moral law, which God has revealed to all people. Catch that? They're not coming from the law of Moses. It's just the way God judges all nations of all, all people at all times. Things that are peculiar to the law of Moses, I think we're not under, not necessary to be under. You can obey it if you want. That's an option. And I do have a whole teaching on this on how to understand the Old Testament um, law, the law of the Old Testament. I have two 
videos on this topic and I've had really good feedback from people. They said it really helped them. The first video is all about how the Jews understood it. The second video is all about how we can understand it and apply it as Christians. I give examples in the New Testament. So I have two videos on that old series, one of the first series I did on YouTube, how to understand the Old Testament law. Let's see, the uh, the Sabbath in particular, um, Romans 14, I think you just casually read Romans 14, you see that we're not under the requirement to follow the Sabbath. And I'm going to actually read for you guys too, because I don't expect everyone to just go click all my old videos. So Romans 14, I'm going to read a big chunk of scripture with a little bit of commentary. Question is, you know, when Paul was writing to the Romans, is he trying to get them to obey the Sabbath, telling them they don't have to? What's going on? Romans 14, as for the one who's weak in the faith, weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. The weak faith in Romans 14, the one who's weak in faith, it's not an insult. They're not lesser Christians. They're not weaker Christians. Rather, they have a lot more um, things that they feel they can't do, even though they could do those things, but they feel they can't. This, for example, is someone who, like me, doesn't drink alcohol, even though they could but I have like this, I don't really feel right about it, you know, and so I don't, even though it's okay, and I would never judge someone else for doing it, I don't for me, right? That's an area where I'm weak. I don't feel like insulted by that, but that's the terminology here. So the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Don't argue about this stuff. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not, and this is probably because they thought the meat had been offered to idols and they felt like they couldn't eat the meat because they were participating in idolatry. While some other Christians are like, it all belongs to God anyway, and they're gobbling it down. And so his conclusion is, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. It's up to you. This is not an issue. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person, another example. That was about food. This is about drink. Or this is about days, excuse me. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. What is the person who esteems one day better than another? This is probably about the Sabbath. Most likely, this is the, most, this is the key issue of, of esteeming days weekly is the Sabbath. So one person esteems it as better than another one, esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Go ahead. He who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks, gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Personal accountability, God, I'm going to follow what my conscience says in serving you the best way I can and trust you with all the details. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on another. This is, this is the do not judge part, right? On controversial issues, not just controversial, sorry, because some issues are not disputed, but they're, but they're controversial, <laughs> Like, like the topic of scripture and homosexuality. There's, there should be no uh, dispute on this. The scripture is clear. It's just controversial. But we're talking about issues of conscience. Issues that are really open. You want to be more strict? Go ahead. It's okay. Don't judge. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded uh, in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He's talking about food or days or whatever. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. If your brother 
is grieved by what you eat. You are no longer walking in love, but what you eat do not destroy. By what you eat do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. This is the person who uh, let's say they drink alcohol in America is a big issue here. So. Um, you know, say they drink and they enjoy it and they enjoy it under the Lord. They don't get drunk. It's just a total liberty for them. But by throwing it in the face, unnecessarily throwing it in the face of the ones who can't drink and don't drink, they create a problem for that person that is not a charitable and loving thing to do. And so that should change not the ability for you to have a liberty, but how you interact with your brothers and sisters in love with your liberty. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So um, there's another scripture in Colossians that mentions the same thing. He actually is bothered when the Colossians are observing days and weeks and months and years, specifically days and weeks, which is the Sabbath. That's an observance of the Sabbath. And he's bothered that the Colossians are finding themselves bound by it. If you want to observe it, fine. But you think that this is a requirement? That's a misunderstanding of what it means to be in Christ. So there's my uh, my answer to that question. Um, more teaching in my stuff on the Old Testament. Elizabeth Remen's final question today. I will do 20. In 1 Samuel 28, Saul talks to Samuel and asks for his help. I think it's sinful to pray to the dead, but am I right in thinking this? Catholics pray to Mary and other saints too. Is this biblical? Um, so in 1 Samuel 28, it is this like wild story of Sam, you know, Saul goes to a medium. Uh, um, um, now this is clearly an ungodly woman. And she tries to contact the dead, Samuel, on Saul's behalf. Samuel actually shows up. Now, a few things that we need to note. First off, it does seem to be the real Samuel, not some sort of phantasm or, or, or impression of Samuel. It seems like the real, you know, it wasn't fake. Like this was Samuel actually showed up. Not in a body, but he showed up. So that's one thing. Two, um, the medium is surprised. She's shocked by this. And so it doesn't seem that this is normally what happens when she does this, right? This is something God did as a way of like sort of slapping Saul in the back of the head. So he shows up and he rebukes Saul and rebukes everybody and everybody there. Um, so three, this is not an example for us to follow. If people want to use this as an example of contacting the dead, then they're saying that we can go to pagan unbelieving mediums to contact the dead. Right, because that's the example. And so if this is going to be used as an example for contacting the dead, they're, they're getting the verse completely inside out. Like this is clearly forbidden. Saul is, uh, King Saul is clearly doing something that God doesn't want him to do. And he's using this to correct him in that thing. He gets condemned and he gets told that he's going to die. So this is like not a good scenario to follow. As far as contacting the dead, the blanket rule in the scripture is don't. Don't try to contact the dead. Don't, don't make those attempts. This is something that God forbids, even for pagan nations, which means it's not just an Old Testament law thing that we have liberty in today. Even pagan nations don't do that. When it comes to Christians contacting the dead, I, uh, and, and I, when I say they're dead, I mean their physical bodies are dead. They're physical, they're not, they didn't disappear from reality. Like They exist. They're in the presence of the Lord. But you're not to contact them because they're in that category of being those who have died. 
And so we're not, we're not to do that. That's the blanket rule in the Old Testament. God forbid every nation, every human in the world from doing it. Um, in the New Testament, we certainly don't have any examples of it. We don't have anything like where would Paul write it? Like where he says, hey, brethren, concerning those who fall, who fall asleep in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, I don't want you to grieve as others who have no hope. And he tries to give them hope and comfort. comfort. Why doesn't Paul say right there, but pray to them because they can hear you. Like talk about comfort. Tell me that they can hear me and I can pray to them. Why doesn't Paul say that? Because it's not even anywhere in his mind. The only hope for those who've gone, who've gone on to be with the Lord is that we'll see them in the resurrection. That's when we'll contact them again. When the resurrection happens, when the second coming of Christ happens, or when I go to be with the Lord, that's when it'll happen. So this whole um, praying to the dead thing, it's often like, well, you ask humans to pray for you on earth, don't you? Why can't you ask the dead? Well, for the same reason that you couldn't do it in the Old Testament. For the same reason that you couldn't do it, even as a non-Jew, why God would judge your nation for doing this. Because God has forbidden it. Because this is ultimately a kind of witchcraft and something that God does not approve of. Uh, God has the power. He could communicate our prayers to the to relatives who've gone on before us. Right? He could. But he could also use Harry Potter spells to do miracles. And just because he could do something doesn't mean that he will or that we should act like he will, he will or we should build doctrines and theology based on it, which is what um, Roman Catholicism has done on this topic. So if that's not controversial enough, then uh, come back next Friday <laughs> and we'll do more. Um, I hope that this has been fruitful and helpful and a blessing to you. I hope it's helping you learn to think biblically about everything and grow you in your walk with Christ. If you're a non-believer, I hope that you're watching. I'm glad you're watching this. And I hope you're, you're seeing that there is a uh, a reasonableness to taking Christianity seriously. And some of the, the silliness that you associate with Christianity is because you've only seen it in a non-serious way. But there is a real serious Christianity that you should consider. And beyond that, um, next week, next Monday, I'm doing the Mark series. On Wednesday, I have a video about polygamy that's going to probably put me in a little bit of hot water with people. I, admittedly, I don't fully know the answer to this, this question I'm being asked about what if a polygamist gets saved. So I spent a lot of time, like several hours, many hours working on just trying to answer this question. And I'm bringing that on Wednesday and next Friday, you know, the normal time, 1 p.m. Pacific time. I will be answering your questions live. And thank you so much. God bless.